Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. Uh, if you'll remain standing, turn in your Bibles to James chapter 1. We're back in James this morning, picking up where we left off in chapter 1. So James chapter 1, and our text for this morning are verses 19 through 21. James chapter 1, verses 19 through 21, if you'll follow along as I read our text now, beginning in verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. May the Lord bless this reading of his word. You may be seated. You'll remember that after a very brief word of greeting, James began this letter at the beginning of chapter 1, addressing the issue of trials. In verses 1 to 4, he addressed the believer's proper response to trials. In verses 5 to 8, he addressed the fact that we need God's wisdom in order to approach our trials properly. In verses 9 to 12, James gave us an illustration of this in practice, using poverty and riches, which are commonly experienced trials. And then in verses 13 to 15, James changed from trials to address the problem of temptation, its source and and the process of temptation. And then after having said quite a bit about trials, testings, and temptation, which are pretty heavy subjects, James knew that his readers needed a word of encouragement at this point, and so in verses 16 to 18, he turned to the subject of the goodness of God. After an affectionate warning in verse 16, he told us three things about the goodness of God. He told us God is the source of all that is good. God is the unchanging source of all that is good. And then in verse 18, he told us that God is the source of the supreme act of goodness, the goodness of salvation. Every believer was once in the spiritual graveyard, dead in trespasses and sins, but the word of God came and brought spiritual life. And James said it this way in verse 18, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. God caused us to be born again through the instrumentality of the living and abiding word of God, and James simply says it was through, through the word of truth. We were brought forth, we were born again, given new spiritual life by the word of God. And this mention of the word in in their regeneration now turns James' thoughts in verses 19 to 27 to urging them to live according to the word. And it goes without saying that where there is new life, there's evidence of life, there's action, there's activity, but 
What is obvious in the physical realm is not always quite so obvious in the spiritual realm. And I say that because today there seems to be a major disconnect between belief and behavior, theology and action, hearing and doing. A.W. Tozer said, So why does the gulf that separates theory from practice in the church that an inquiring stranger who chances upon both would scarcely dream that there was any relation between them? An intelligent observer of our human scene who heard the Sunday morning sermon and later watched the Sunday afternoon conduct of those who had heard it would conclude that he has been examining two distinct and contrary religions. It appears, he said, that too many Christians want to enjoy the thrill of feeling right but are not willing to endure the inconvenience of being right. So the divorce between theory and practice becomes permanent in fact, though in word the union is declared to be eternal. And this has been a problem in the church from the beginning, which is why the dominant theme of the book of James is that genuine faith in God must be and will be evident in the life. Because genuine faith, saving faith, is an active faith. It is a faith that works practically in one's life. It's an obedient faith, a faith that affects the way you live. It it behaves in a certain way. If our faith is indeed genuine, our outward acts are going to reflect that inward reality. And the goal of James is to promote in his readers a life that is consistent with faith in Christ. And he urges them to put their faith into practice by living out their professed devotion to Jesus. And of course, living out the new life we have in Christ means living according or in obedience to God's Word. I mean, every Christian must follow God's Word rather than their own ideas. Why? Well, because God's Word is the standard and guide for Christian behavior. God's Word is our final authority. It's our rule for faith and practice. The Word of God that brought about our salvation is the same Word that accomplishes our sanctification, that is, our spiritual maturity and growth in Christ-likeness. I mean, where do we find the strength for living the Christian life and for facing our difficulties? Where do we find the wisdom we need to respond to our trials and, and the strength to resist temptation? Where do we find everything we need for life and godliness? The Word of God. I mean, just as the Word has the, or just as the Word was the power of our new birth, it is also the power of our new life. And in this final section of chapter one, James describes the Word of God in four ways. He describes it in verse 21 as the implanted Word. In verse 22, simply as the Word. In verse 23, figuratively as a mirror. And in verse 25, as the perfect law, the law of liberty. And James' point in this final section is, now that you've been born again by the transforming power of God's Word, you must live according to the Word, allowing it to continue its divine work in and through your lives. But this does not just happen. Believers cannot merely sit back and passively understand, appreciate, and apply God's Word apart from their own sincere determination and effort. 
God's word must be received and then acted upon. It must be heard and and obeyed if it's going to be effective in our lives. And in this final section of chapter 1, James tells us that we must humbly receive God's word in verses 19 to 21. And then in verses 22 to 27, he tells us that we are then to do God's word, apply God's word. And in our study this morning, we're going to cover verses 19 to 21, receiving the word. And next week, Lord willing, we'll cover James 22, uh, chapter 1, verses 22 through 27, doing the word. So let's look now at verses 19 to 21, humbly receiving God's word. Notice, if you will, verse 19, James says, Know this, my beloved brothers, Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Here for the second time now, James addresses his readers as my beloved brothers. That is, my dear brothers and sisters in Christ, my fellow believers. And this is a a reassurance of James' genuine love for them. It speaks of the close relationship between James and his original readers. It softens any suggestion of harshness in his commands to them and and assures them that he wants them to feel that he's not a superior commanding them, but rather he is an equal exhorting them. James is speaking as a true pastor to a flock of fellow believers for whom he has the deepest affection in the Lord. I mean, these these believers are, are the objects of his heartfelt love and concern. James opens verse 19 by saying to his beloved brothers and sisters, you know, in light of of your new life through the Word, that's verse 18, know this. Or as the NIV has it, take note of this. Well, what is it there to know? Or what is it there to take note of? Well, three things. Look at verse 19. First of all, he says, let every person be quick to hear. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. That's what they're to know. But a couple of things here before we begin to take this apart. First of all, he says, let everyone, let every person, in other words, everyone, every believer. And so this is for all of us, every one of us. We all need to heed James' counsel. There are no exceptions. And the tense This is written and indicates this is a continuing duty. So this is a necessary, continual duty for every believer. That's what James wants us to know. And secondly, while James' words about being quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger uh, are certainly biblical principles that can be applied to our personal relationships, the context here. And therefore, the primary application is our response to God's Word. So this is not a generic statement about being a good listener, in the sense of listening to your kids, listening to your wife, listening to your friends and not talking too much. Those, of course, are all good and very important, but that is not what this is talking about. He's talking in the context of the Word of Truth, which is the subject of verse 18, also the subject of verse 21, 22, 23, and 25. Context is everything. 
And the context is the Word of God. And what he is saying is let every one of us be quick to listen to the Word of God itself. We should be quick to hear it, slow to speak out with our opinions on it, anticipating what James is going to say in chapter 3, verse 1, and then slow to anger when it confronts our sins. As one commentator said, James is not giving suggestions for the church, but divine commands in reference to the Christian and his hearing the Word of God. He is not just offering a quaint Jewish proverb for hearing and speaking. He is referring to the whole posture of the Christian toward the ministry of God's Word. And so with regard to the ministry of God's Word, James says, first of all, every Christian has a continual duty to be quick to hear. Quick to hear. Now this does not mean uh, to listen to sermon recordings playing at twice their normal speed. That's not what he's talking about. <laughs> the word quick does not refer to the nature of the action, but rather to the attitude governing it. It conveys the idea of eagerness, attentiveness, energy, excitement, all about hearing the word of truth. It's the opposite of being slow or or slow of hearing, or, or dull of hearing, or lazy or lackadaisical about hearing the Word of God. The word here means to listen with intent. So the expression quick to listen is a beautiful way of capturing the idea of active listening. Active listening. Because it's entirely possible to hear but not to really listen. And we men prove that all the time. You know, as our wives are talking to us and we have that glazed-over look on our face clearly indicating that while we may be hearing them, we certainly are not listening to them. Right? All of you wives know that's true, right? None of you men are going to admit to that. James is telling us that we're to be ready and willing, eager and excited to listen carefully, attentively to the Word of God, ready to obey what we hear. Listening, one man said, is the art of closing one's mouth and opening one's ears and heart. And it's interesting to note the emphasis that Jesus put on listening with his instructions, not only to pay attention to what you hear in Mark 4.24, but also to take care how you hear, there in Luke 8, 18. James says we are to be quick to hear or to listen. And of course, being quick to listen implies a public reading and proclamation of the Word. And the mention of hearing rather than reading probably reflects the usual way that the early Christians received God's Word. Because as you know, most believers did not possess personal copies of the Scripture, but were dependent on hearing it read and, and taught at public services. I mean, James' command called for an eager and prompt attentiveness in listening to the Old Testament Scriptures read and taught and the apostolic proclamation of Christ's teaching, which eventually became our New Testament. And so active, careful listening was imperative in the early church. I mean, to listen eagerly to the Word of God read and proclaimed was the first duty of discipleship. 
But in challenging his first century flock to be quick to listen, James is also putting his finger on a great need in the church today. Because many of us today are non-listeners. Our age will not go down in history as the age of hearing. I read that Adlai Stevenson once opened an address to students at Princeton with these words. I understand I am here to speak and you are here to listen. Let's hope we both finish at the same time. (laughs) But the truth is, a lot of church attenders get through listening long before the pastor gets through preaching. And that is not so much a reflection on the preacher as it is the inability of the hearer who checked out shortly after the sermon started. And why is that? Well, part of, our, part of it is our inability to concentrate due to the short attention span created by all of the media we have today. You see, a culture so dependent on visual images to keep its attention has difficulty concentrating on anything, especially the preaching of God's Word. Another reason we're such poor listeners is that we're so busy. As one man said, our busyness substitutes frenzy for conversation and wrecks our relationships. It fills our calendars and empties our lives of the ability to listen to anything that turns us away from our little gods. Another part of it is that we're largely lazy and undisciplined. Yet another part of it is that we are constantly encouraged on every hand to talk. It seems that the thinking is that if we talk enough, we're going to come to discover important truths. But the greatest part of it is that we do not value the Word of God as we should, whether it's the public reading and proclamation of the Word or our own private reading and devotions. I mean, isn't it true that our so-called quiet times are most often filled with the noise of our our own voices from beginning to end? I mean, how much do we know of quiet, silent waiting upon God, listening for His voice, longing for the Holy Spirit to impress upon our open hearts the living truth we need to hear? The average Christian in this country probably hears between 50 and 100 hours of preaching every year. But how does he or she hear? Do they actively, attentively listen? You know, what kind of attitude should we have in listening? How often do we listen to preaching either as a duty or even a diversion? How often do we turn to the preacher in the same spirit as Cornelius turned to Peter when he said to Peter, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord? How often do we truly listen to the preaching of the word with the humility and eager attitude of young Samuel when he said to the Lord, speak for your servant hears or your servant is listening? We're to be quick to listen to God's Word, 
Why? Because it is more necessary to us than our food. It is more precious than gold. It is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We cannot live properly without the Word of God. In it we have everything we need for life and godliness. And so how very eager we should be to read it and to hear it taught. Because nothing, absolutely nothing, should be more important to us than taking in the Word of God. We need to sit silently and listen to God's Word open to us. We need to meditate on and ponder over words and sentences. We need to weigh the nuances, examine it word by word, and and listen carefully so we can comprehend its meaning. And after we have comprehended its meaning, then go first of all and apply it to our own lives and then share it with others as as we have opportunity. As believers, we should seize every opportunity to increase our exposure to the Scriptures. I mean, take advantage of every occasion to hear it faithfully preached or taught and to read it because, like Peter said, like newborn infants, we are to long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. Because you see, this sincere, eager desire for God's Word is one of the surest marks of a true child of God. And someone with no desire at all to hear God's word, well, that's the sure mark of someone who is an unbeliever. Pastor James tells us we must be quick to listen. And again, this is a continuous uh, command, so we are, we're to keep at it. It's the first duty of those who want the word of God to be effective in our lives. And secondly, James says we're to be slow to speak quick to hear, and slow to speak. Now, slow to speak does not mean slowness in speaking. It's not what it means. It means putting a damper on the tongue. That's the other side to listening well. Keeping our mouths closed makes room for thinking, pondering, meditating, considering all the elements necessary for true listening and learning. Because you cannot listen well, you cannot listen carefully while you're talking. One Stoic philosopher said, we have two ears and one mouth, therefore we should listen twice as much as we speak. The rabbis put it even better. Men have two ears but one tongue, that they should hear more than they speak. The ears are always open, ever ready to receive instruction. But the tongue is surrounded with a a double row of teeth to hedge it in and to keep it within proper bounds. It's certainly not wrong to speak. I mean, some people are so quiet they never say a word, but then, of course, there are others who never stop talking. What James has in mind here is this. The corporate worship services of the early church are not as structured as our services are today. I mean, there, was, there was more personal participation and interaction. And unfortunately, this created an atmosphere in which people would interrupt the speaker just to you know, share their own thoughts and insights. But as one man said, sometimes those insights were outsights. In other words, they were completely out of touch with reality. And apparently there, uh, there were some in the church 
who wanted to talk and not listen. James makes reference to them in verse 26 of chapter 1, people who didn't bridle their tongue. In fact, most of James chapter 3 is about the tongue, so it's something that, that he comes back to. And so there were some people there who were real quick to speak and slow to listen. They were accustomed to saying whatever happened to come into their minds without giving it careful thought. Of course, some were proud and enjoyed hearing their own voices. You know, they wanted to be thought of as very deeply spiritual and to be considered teachers. And so James reverses that for them. He tells them, you need to be quick to listen to the Word of God, and you also need to be slow to speak. In other words, you need to restrain your mouth and listen carefully and attentively, giving the word time to sink in, because oftentimes your initial impression or thoughts on a passage are shallow, if not wrong, altogether. You see, it behooves us to think on the word before we spout off about it. Because quick speaking can indicate a misplaced and misinformed zeal. There's a lot of, oftentimes people have a lot of zeal with no wisdom to go along with that. We learn while listening, not while speaking. And so we need to keep our mouths closed so our minds will be ready to hear. You know, a continual talker can't hear what anyone else says. And by the same token, will not hear when God speaks to him or her through his word. And Solomon would have agreed with James. He said in Proverbs 13.3, Whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. He who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. He also said in Proverbs 10.19, When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. And then in Proverbs 29.20, we read, Do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than for him. When the appropriate time to speak does come, I mean, what is said should be carefully thought out. When we speak for the Lord, we should have the gravest concern that what we say not only is true, but is spoken in a way that both edifies those who hear and honors the Lord in whose behalf we speak. I mean, we should pursue every opportunity to hear the Word of God preached and taught, to read the Word ourselves, and to discuss it with other believers who love, honor, and seek to obey it. And at the same time, we should be very cautious, patient, and careful when we have opportunity to teach or explain it to others. And no doubt that is the reason that James later warns, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with stricter, with greater strictness. And if more people believe that today, we wouldn't have a lot of the nonsense coming out of the pulpits that we do. James says you need to be quick to listen to the word of God and slow to speak. But there's another way in which we need to be slow to speak that I want to mention. And that is, we need to be slow to speak to ourselves. In other words, when the Word of God is being preached, 
We must be on guard against the tendency to, to be inwardly focusing on other things. Raising objections based on our own preconceived ideas. Being critical of the preacher. Being critical of the lighting or the temperature. Or whatever. I mean, slow to speak includes the idea of being careful not to be thinking about your own thoughts, ideas, and opinions on a passage of Scripture, or reading your study Bibles and thinking about the comments there while someone else is trying to proclaim the Word of God. Because we cannot really listen to God's Word when our minds are somewhere else or on our own thoughts. And so we need to keep silent inside as well as outside, so that we are able to give our full attention to what is being said. Our natural tendency in respect to God's Word is to be slow to hear and quick to speak. And so not fully understanding because of our faulty listening, we're quick to jump to wrong conclusions, quick to offer advice, giving opinions and verdicts on every situation and person based on faulty understanding. But we must keep in mind that slow to speak is an ongoing command not from Pastor Jim, but from the Holy Spirit himself. James says, be quick to hear, slow to speak. Now, thirdly, he says, slow to anger. When someone once said, people who fly into a rage always make a bad landing. And I think that's true. Anger is a very natural emotion that is an all but automatic response, even for believers who are not spiritually prepared to anything or anyone that harms or displeases them. And the Greek word translated here as anger does not refer to an explosive outburst of anger, but rather to an inner deep resentment that seethes and smolders and often uh, goes unnoticed by others. And so it's an anger that only the Lord and, and the believer knows about. So it's especially dangerous then because it can be harbored privately in the heart where it just simmers, smolders, and defiles. And in this context, James is speaking about anger as it relates directly to hearing the Word of God. And it refers to a disposition of hostility. You say, well, what do you mean? Well, 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17 says this, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. But when the Word of God hits close to home, when the Word of God reproves or rebukes, when it convicts us of sin in our lives, even believers naturally respond with defensiveness, indignation, even anger. Nobody likes their sin held up to a perfect standard. But loved ones, that's just what happens when God's Word exposes our innermost thoughts and behavior. 
When the Word of God is faithfully preached, it exposes our sin. And some people get angry. They don't like what they hear. When the truth is presented, they don't want to hear it. The truth is presented and they get angry toward the truth and also toward the preacher. They don't want to hear the truth. They, they say they love the truth, but they don't like the truth when it steps on their toes. They love it when it's stomping on somebody else's toes, but not their own. And so it begins a, a smoldering resentment. Some people begin to resent when they, they hear something that's different than what they believe. Some people resent when they hear something that confronts them. I mean, they're, they're hostile to the truth because they're convicted by it. I mean, some people, you know, come to a church like ours, they hear the preaching, and, and it's the greatest thing since sliced bread. That is, until the first time I say something that touches a sin in their life, some pet belief that they hold on to, and then it's, I'll never go back to that church again. That offends me. That's anger. A resentment. It's a hostility toward the truth of God's Word. I remember... The very first year the church started back in 1994, our first Sunday was November 13th, uh, 1994, so Christmas wasn't that far away. And that first Christmas taught about the, the biblical Christmas story, just exposing some of the myths of Christmas that people believe. And after the service, I, they didn't tell me this, but told a couple in the church he just ruined my Christmas. I'm never coming back to that church. And this person didn't. I mean, so much for the truth of God's Word. Heaven forbid we should believe the right things about Christmas. Galatians 4.16, Paul said, Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? He said that to the Galatians, and in the minds of some of the Galatians, the answer was yes. In reality, of course, Paul's persistence in faithfully telling them God's truth without compromise or omission was the kindest and the most loving, most helpful thing he could possibly do for them. That is the kindest and most loving, helpful thing anyone can do for someone else. I mean, the greatest thing I could ever do for you is to tell you the truth of God's Word. But throughout the history of the church, even believers have resented God's truth and the messenger who brought it. And when the word of God is accurately proclaimed, it will often find, people will often find that it hurts. Of course it will. It's a sword that pierces and cuts deeply. It exposes sin. It exposes wrong thinking, wrong beliefs, sinful practices and behavior. And so how do we, I mean, how do you respond when this happens? Do you become resentful and combative? I've had people get in my face after the service. If you allow anger to come in, the Word of God will not come in. I mean, some fail to humbly listen and receive the Word of God because they're angry at the one who's delivering it. 
Perhaps they've seen a flaw in it. And when it comes to myself, I'll be the first to admit I have many flaws. But so do every one of you. We're all flawed together. Or perhaps they disagree with something he's done in leading the church. And those in this category would do well to heed James' word about being slow to anger. One man said, an angry spirit is never a listening, teachable spirit. Those who are slow to hear, quick to speak, and quick to become angry are not going to grow in the Word because the Word of God will not be effective in their lives. And these are days in which the tendency is to be slow to hear, swift to speak, and swift to anger. I mean, you... You might find yourself getting hot under the collar. You might find yourself getting heated up over a a part of my preaching. Well, you need to stop and evaluate why that is. Because you see, it doesn't matter if uh, you like it. What matters is this. Is it true? Is that what the Word of God says? Is it true? And if it is true then you need to repent and humbly receive the Word of God and apply it in your life. But that's something else nobody wants to hear. You know, be humble as you hear the Word of God. Don't come with your defenses up, which leads to anger and resistance to the Word. I mean, how often do you approach God's Word talking and not listening? How often do you come to God's Word thinking, here's what I wanted to say? How often do you come to God's Word looking to justify yourself and your sinful actions or your sinful lack of action? I mean, so many times we're like people in an argument who are not really listening to one another, but instead we're consumed with formulating what we're going to say in response. And we're not quick to hear and and slow to speak. As one man said, we loathe to listen and are anxious to argue. We hear a verse like Luke 12, 33, sell your possessions and give to the needy, and we're already thinking, how do I get around that? And this has been true of God's people throughout history. Instead of humbly listening to God's word, his people have resisted it. This was the response of God's people to the prophets in the Old Testament who proclaimed his word. This was the response to Jesus when he spoke the words of the Father and and to Paul when he preached in the synagogues. For example, the crowds in Lystra stoned Paul, dragged him out of town at, at the instigation of unbelieving Jews. And seeing what happened in Scripture to people who proclaim God's Word will come close to talking you out of being a preacher. Because those who proclaim the Word of God don't often end up well in the world. I mean, let me ask you, how do you respond when the Bible steps on your toes? Because it steps on all of our toes some of the time. How do you respond when the Bible steps on your toes? How do you respond when the Word of God confronts the ongoing sin in your life? 
know, you're hearing it preached, maybe you're reading it and it says something that you don't like because it confronts the way you think or live. Do you get angry and defensive? Thinking, well, what right does that preacher have to say that? How dare he tell me how to live? Now, before we move on, James is not saying that all anger is wrong. That is why he said, be slow to anger instead of do not be angry. He is not implying that there is no place for justifiable anger. I mean, Jesus exercised righteous indignation. But keep in mind, it was a holy and compassionate anger. But there are some things that we should be angry about. And there is something very wrong with the person who does not get angry at sin, at evil, injustice, immorality, ungodliness, Satan, and anything that dishonors the Lord or assaults His glory. I mean, that person will have little desire to stand up and fight against. So there are some things that we should be angry about. But even then, a godly anger can be controlled and it doesn't express itself inappropriately. And Paul exhorts us in Ephesians 4, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. So James is warning us not to be angry at God's word when it reveals our sin and challenges our sinful behavior and values. And if it doesn't challenge, from time to time, if it doesn't challenge uh, your sinful behavior and values, you're probably not listening. And James then tells us why being slow to anger is important. Look at verse 20. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And the obvious meaning of what James is saying is that anger that comes from man does not reflect the righteousness that comes from God, who is specifically said to be compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. Human anger and God's righteousness are polar opposites. Human anger can never lead to the kind of righteous behavior that God demands. And that is true at an individual level as well as a corporate one. Man's anger is opposed to God's holiness and to his demands for a holy life, and it is to be avoided. Sinful anger is to be avoided. And the Christian's calling and duty is to be Christ-like, to follow his example, demonstrating to a cynical, sinful world that he is a child of God, indwelt by the divine nature. And sinful anger is no part of that life and should therefore be avoided at all costs. Instead, the Christian should seek to bring every part of his life under the continuous control of the Holy Spirit. Rather than reacting in anger, James now develops his message a little further and tells us how to respond to the Word. He gives us a two-part command regarding receiving the word. The first is negative and the second positive. First of all, he says sin must be put off. So there must be repentance. Look what he says in verse 21. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. The word translated put away is literally having put off. You know, as you would strip off dirty clothes. In Acts 7, 58, it's used in the literal sense, but generally in the New Testament, the term is used metaphorically. 
Several New Testament writers use it in exactly the same context as James. Paul said in Colossians 3.8, But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 12, verse 1, Let us lay aside or let us put off every weight and sin which clings so closely. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, Put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. As well as using the same word James uses for getting rid of sin, all three of those passages have something else in common with James. And that is the emphasis on the thoroughness of the work that needs to be done. Paul tells us to put them all away. The writer of Hebrews says to lay aside everything, every weight, every sin. Peter says to put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and and all slander. And here James tells us to put away or, or to get rid of all filthiness and rampant wickedness. The word filthiness speaks of moral defilement or impurity. Now, we might use that word for adultery, rape, homosexuality, and the like. But it's very important for us to notice that James is applying it to the issues he just touched on in the previous two verses. Namely, not being quick to hear, not being slow to speak, and not being slow to anger in reference to God's word. As far as James is concerned, these are not minor issues. He describes them as filthiness, moral defilement, and also as rampant wickedness, which refers to the fact that remaining sin is still present in our lives in abundance. That's very sobering. And it should speak loudly to us about our flippant and careless attitude with respect to listening and receiving the Word of God. And our flippant and careless attitude about attending the service where we hear the preaching of the Word of God. James says the lack of those things is filthiness. It's moral defilement and rampant wickedness. In other words, it's serious sin. And he's telling us that before we can receive the word of God, we must confess our sins. We need to put aside all filthiness and wickedness that remains in our lives that we're aware of. I mean, this is the battle of the old and the new nature. You know, Wearsby described this verse by comparing our hearts to a garden. And he said, if left to itself, the soil would produce only weeds. James urged us to pull out the weeds and prepare the soil of our hearts for the implanted Word of God. An interesting thing to note about this word filthiness, it's a very rare word in the New Testament. In fact, it's used only here and in chapter 2, verse 2, where James talks about the man with dirty, filthy clothes. But this was a, a medical term used at that time for earwax which, if allowed to build up, could cause dull hearing. 
And of course, the idea fits quite well here, doesn't it? James is telling us that sin in our lives is like having wax in our ears. It, it prevents the word of truth from reaching our hearts. It cannot get through the ear. It, if it can't get through the ear, it's not going to get down into the heart. Sin prevents us from hearing and doing the word of God. As one man said, it would not be overstating the case to say that the very worst damage that sin can do to the Christian is to deafen him to the teaching of the Word of God. Beware of anything that can tend to become wax in your spiritual ears, preventing you from hearing what it is that God wants to say to you. Whatever it is, it must be recognized, regretted, and removed. So we as Christians need to take the wax out of our ears. In other words, we have to get rid of sin. You know, confess and, and repent of our sins so that the Word of God may influence our lives. And James' point is that unless we get rid of sin in whatever form it appears, it's going to hinder our ability to listen, receive, understand, and therefore profit from God's Word. And so first of all, sin must be put off. And then having put off sin, the positive duty is, notice verse 21, receive with meekness the implanted word. Receive with meekness the implanted word. So first of all, uh, we're to receive the word of God. Well, what does it mean to receive the word of God? Well, the Greek word translated receive means a welcoming or appropriating reception. It's the same word Luke used to describe the Bereans' response to God's word. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Paul also used the same word to describe the response of the Thessalonians who, when they heard God's word, received the word of God which they heard from us. He said, you accepted it not only or not as the word of man, but as what it really is, the word of God. And so what does receiving the Word of God mean? Well, receive carries uh, with it a sense of urgency, and it, it denotes more than just the act of acceptance. The idea here is that of a warm, eager receptance, a warm, eager welcome. And then James says we're to receive the Word with a certain attitude. He says we're to receive the Word with meekness. It can be translated Humility. It's the opposite of being quick to speak and quick to anger. The word meekness tells us that we're to come to the Word of God with a soft, gentle, teachable disposition, recognizing the authority of God's Word and submitting to it, because it's God's Word. It's a humble attitude that bows to the authority of the Lord spoken through His Word. It's, it's the willingness to follow after whatever He commands, no matter what the cost. And it doesn't matter who the teacher or preacher is providing, He's faithfully declaring the Word of God. We're to humbly accept its authority and eagerly and gladly and warmly receive it. We're not to sit in judgment over the Word of God. Rather, we're to let the Word of God sit in judgment over us. Let it examine us. 
We're not to pick and choose proudly what we think we want from the Word of God or what we want it to say. Rather, we're to acknowledge humbly that we need all of its instruction. And we do well to ask ourselves, do I come to the Word of God with a humble, gentle, open, and teachable spirit? Do I welcome the truths of God's Word into my heart? All of them? Do I meditate upon it in my mind with with a view to actually obeying it? I mean, simply agreeing with the truth is not the same as obeying it. We must act on what we hear and be obedient to it. We need to do it. But that's next week. See, it's all too possible to hear the Word and and read the Word without letting it speak to us. We can study it in an academic way without being affected by it. You know, our pride and and hardness and, and sin make us unreceptive, unteachable, and unresponsive. And only those with humble, teachable, submissive hearts can expect to receive the maximum benefit from the Scriptures. In Psalm 25, 9, He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble His way. The Lord said to the prophet Isaiah, But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. And we are to receive with meekness, with humility, James says, the implanted word. Receive with meekness or humility the implanted word. The Greek word translated implanted has the literal meaning of planting a seed in the ground. And here it is used metaphorically of God's word being implanted and taking root in the good soil. In other words, in the heart of a believer at the time of salvation. And the Word of God is planted in each and every Christian at the time of conversion. Well, then what does James mean when he says to believers, receive the implanted Word? I mean, how is it possible to receive a Word which is already implanted? What's he talking about? Well, James is telling us of the necessity to go on receiving the Word of God in such a way that it becomes more firmly and deeply planted and rooted in our lives than ever before. Listen, you cannot grow oak trees in window boxes, can you? Nor can we expect to be strong, productive Christians unless the Word of God is allowed to sink its roots deeply into our hearts so that it can germinate effectively, spread out those roots, and produce godly fruit in our lives. And so we're to continually open our hearts to the Word of God, welcoming welcoming it, receiving more and more of it with an eager readiness to learn and with a genuine desire to bring every area of our lives under its direction and control. Because it's an all-or-nothing proposition, folks. And there should be no resistance on our part to anything that God says to us. 
whether that's our faith, our marriage, our finances, whatever. There should be no resistance on our part to anything that God says to us in his word. One man said to receive the word in the fullest sense is so to open the inner self to the influence of God's word that its truth is transfused into the heart. Let me ask you something. Do we, do we truly come to the word of God like that? Do we truly come to the word of God like that? Or do we just sit with scowls on our faces and angry heart, being resistant to the word of God because we've taken up some, some supposed offense or because the word of God is convicting us of sin. Do we come to the word of God humbly, eagerly, welcoming it in? Or do we come to it with our own preconceived ideas and pet theological thoughts or doctrinal traditions? There's a danger of reading into the Bible instead of reading the Bible. And anything that hinders the direct access of the untouched Word of God to our open hearts is both disobedient and dangerous. And in A.W. Tozer's words, we must never edit God. James was calling upon his readers to accept the demands required of their lives by the word implanted at regeneration. They needed to continue receiving the word into their lives, allowing it to shape and and keep them from sin. And James is saying you have to place yourself under the implanted word, open yourself to it, listen carefully to it, receive it into your life so that it can guide you and shape you and mold you and and make you more and more into the image and the likeness of Christ and keep you from sin. And the reason you should do this, James says, is because it is able to save your souls. What does he mean by that? that it's the source of salvation, past, present, and future. It's the source of my justification, sanctification, glorification. It's the word that, that has delivered me from the penalty of sin, continually delivers me from the power of sin, continually conforms me in the image of Christ. That's what he means. 1 Corinthians 1.18, we're being saved by the power of God, and it's the Word that does that. It's the Word that sanctifies and nurtures and builds up. As, as Paul said to the Ephesian elders, it's the Word that builds us up and gives us an inheritance. And James is not talking about salvation here. He's talking to those who are believers and telling them the Word has already been implanted, and now if they'll receive it, if they'll continue on the path of salvation, it'll take them all the way to the glorification. 
I mean, the Word has power to continually deliver us from sin and then to deliver us into the very presence of God. So this whole section here in verses 19 to 21 is a call to the Christian to humbly receive the truth of God's Word. To humbly receive the implanted Word. I mean, you and I have, have, a, have a divine word, and it's been planted in our lives. I mean, when, when every person is born from above, that word is planted in our lives. God, God planted his word within you when you became a member of God's family. And that word is God-breathed. And it can thoroughly equip you for every good work. And James is, is pleading with us here to humbly receive that word, to welcome its presence, to faithfully sit under the preaching of it. You know, read the Bible and, and read the finest books available that will help you to understand the Bible. You know, don't resist the Bible. Humbly submit to it. You see, the, the key to change is our willingness to receive the implanted Word. And only a person who humbly receives the Word of God is capable of overcoming a single sin. Because without the aid of the Spirit and the Word, we are powerless and ignorant. And so while people resist it, that is, while they fidget and whisper and refuse to listen to the preaching, they're not going to conquer any sin in their lives. And the reason is obvious, because they're grieving the Spirit of God. And there is an indivisible union between the Spirit of God and the Word of God. The Spirit works through the Word, being joyfully, eagerly heard, received, and obeyed. And don't expect change apart from the Word of God. And so again, let me ask you, are you humbly receiving the Word? It is by loving and humbly welcoming and receiving God's Word that you'll change, that you'll grow that you'll mature, becoming more and more like Jesus. The psalmist said, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. It is this eternal word standing unmoved by all the changing circumstances of time and space which James exhorts us to receive, to welcome, and to bury deep within our hearts and minds. And may God work these things in our hearts by His Holy Spirit for His great glory. Much to think about. Much to ponder. Much to meditate on. Much to use to examine our own lives. Let's stand and pray. It's your love that makes me see It's your
that comforts me by your blood We have been set free And Lord, give to us a passion for your word That we may grow and walk in all your ways On behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel Reading Palisadro We hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the Word. If you have any remaining questions or comments, please call us at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the website at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening, and may God richly bless you. Grow.